This podcast is produced and copyrighted by 83 Bar Incorporated. It is designed as a general informational resource, and neither the sponsors nor guests are rendering any professional or medical advice. The opinions and claims presented by the guests are their own. Any trademarks used are the property of their respective owners. Welcome to The Patients Speak, healthcare innovations accelerating the patient journey. Presented by 83 Bar. Learn how 83 Bar listens, educates, and navigates patients at 83bar.com. Here's your host, best-selling author, Mark Stinson. Well, hi, welcome everyone to our continuing discussion. We have a panel today who's going to help share some of the ways that we can all as stakeholders improve the racial diversity, more inclusive recruitment of patients in clinical trials. And I'm just so happy to have representatives from Latinos in clinical research. All of these folks are owners of clinical trial sites. They also are research professionals uh, with a lot of experience. They formed their own organization to help focus on this issue. And Ashley, if I could ask you as one of the co-founders, if you could start us off on introduction. Awesome. Yes. Uh, hi, my name is Ashley Marigo. I'm a remote site monitor to at Global CRO. And as uh, Mark mentioned, one of the co-founders of Latinos in Clinical Research. I'm also the founder of the AM Approach. And I am located in Austin, Texas. Uh, we are all virtually involved uh, together through Latinos in Clinical Research. Pretty excited to be here. Thank you for having us, Mark. Great. Thank you. Uh, my name is Dan. I run a blog called The Clinical Trials Guru. You can find me on YouTube, Dan Sfera. I'm into solving practical problems in clinical research, not interested in the think tank stuff. I'm interested in where the rubber meets the road and disparities is definitely one of those issues. Look forward to talking with you. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Monica Quitiba. I am one of the co-founders of Latinos in Clinical Research, also the CRC Academy the, and the Clinical Research Circle. I work also as a site director of one of the clinics here in, in California. We specialize in CNS. I love to be here speaking about our favorite topic <laughs> and how can we improve the industry. Hi, everyone. I'm Judy Galindo, Director of Research for Sun Valley Research Center. Um, I'm also a site co-owner and co-founder of Latinos in Clinical Research. My site is located in Imperial County, California. Uh, we have a large Hispanic patient population, about 70%. It's a rural community. We're about 20 minutes from a border town into Mexico, 45 minutes from Yuma, Arizona, and we're only like two hours from a large city like San Diego. So there's a lot of barriers we have encountered with recruiting patients, promoting clinical research in our community over the past 13 years being a site co-owner in Imperial County. Great. Glad to have you on with us. Hi, I'm Chris Sauber. I'll be the last one speaking on behalf of the co-founders. There's one other co-founder, Dr. Al Jazeerly. Uh, he's not here, so there's six of us. I do a little bit of everything in, in this space. CRO, CRA, site owner, consultant. And it's just, it's pretty much a well-known fact throughout the industry that diversity needs to be increased throughout the industry. Well, on that note then, Ashley, if I could uh, start with you, because you formed this organization, you, you obviously recognize the issue and feel like you ha can be a contributor in solving it. But if you could frame up the issue, especially as it relates to Latinos uh, and their participation and their inclusion in clinical research. 
Oh, for sure. And I definitely don't uh, necessarily want to take full credit of that. Uh, it was Dan that kind of had uh, discussed with Black Women in Political Research and came to Monica and then we kind of just, it happened. <laughs> but yeah, definitely with Latinos in Clinical Research, it's, it's super important that we have an organization that represents Latinos in the industry. There is a huge need, as all you know, all the co-founders have just mentioned, to have representation. Uh, there is a huge lack of again, representation within clinical trials. Also, you know, uh, having people involved within our in our uh, population in zeros and sponsors, hiring. So like uh, overall, really Latinos in clinical research, where main focus right now at the moment is to really uh, bring on the diversity and inclusion to help people within this industry get jobs so that we can, from there, do the grassroots effect, right? Where we ultimately, more Latinos that are within the industry, the more understanding there will be. And hopefully, you know, over time, break it down into college students and the high school students and hopefully like diversify the amount of knowledge and, and resources we can provide on, on a whole. Monica, do you have any input you'd like to add to that? Yeah, so we have basically, we're going to be concentrated in three aspects. Uh, like Ashley was mentioning, the first one is increasing the diversity in, uh, in the industry, the workforce. So this is a very important topic just because once the group of professionals working in the industry is more diverse, then they, they are going to be spreading the word with uh, the families, with friends, with the population in general. And plus, this uh, creates trust in the, in the population outside because they are going to be listening to somebody that it relates uh, with the culture, relates with the language, and understands where we're coming from, right? So that's that's a very important topic. And then from there, obviously, like Ashley was saying, educating the younger generations because the impact they have outside is, is big. And obviously, they are the, the, the future generations. So if we educate them, then this stereotype of the pharmaceutical industry is going to, to break. And plus, we're giving them more options. This is a, a great industry to be involved in. This is wonderful opportunities for everybody. And something that I would also like to mention is that when we have a diverse group of uh, professionals working together, this brings a better science, more excellence, better ideas, and it covers everybody. So that's the, basically the most important aspect in which we want to start concentrating on. Yes. And I think I wanted to mention was that uh, we are Latinos in clinical research, but we are open to all ethnicities because this is something that needs to be addressed on a whole. And so, you know, yes, our focus is Latinos because of the language barrier, but if we welcome all ethnicities because we believe definitely if we can hear from all aspects and we are able to make those bridges between zero sponsors and vendors and, you know, find solutions that ultimately we can also help you know, other ethnicities and then maybe even, you know, help bridge that gap of having other ethnicities create their own organizations as well. Yes. And Chris, maybe we can continue this thought because, I mean, in the first three minutes of our conversation, my mind has already been shifted from an external point of view to an internal point of view that I was expecting us to talk about, you know, how hard our population is to reach or how the criteria might exclude people. But Monica, you've already brought up this issue of trust and stereotypes and inclusivity from the inside out. And Chris, I wondered if you could comment a little more on that. My, I'll try my best. So 
this is a personal opinion. I think a lot of it has to do with cultural as well. Um, mm-hmm. A lack of maybe trust and then machismo. Um, there's nothing wrong with me. I don't need a doctor. I don't need treatment. I think that's a big part of it from the patient perspective where education may be able to overcome some of that, but not all of it. Where the other part, as Monica had alluded to, might serve as tackling the machismo part of it um, would be getting individuals involved from an employment perspective, working within the industry and seeing that it serves a benefit to others. Right. And then they can kind of break down that barrier of, you know, you do have an illness. Here's a better treatment or at least a treatment to consider. And the only way that this treatment gets to market is if you actually serve a purpose and work within this industry as a patient to bring it to market. Right. So it actually kind of increases the machismo right here. You're serving a purpose for others. You have more power. Yes. Yeah. We'll continue Mark's interview with today's guest in just a moment. Our sponsor, 83Bar, offers proven patient recruitment solutions for medical product launches and clinical trials. The team at 83Bar can help you achieve better patient outcomes, find client success stories and market reports, along with resources like videos and publications, all on their website, 83Bar.com. Judy, if I could turn to you, you know, you were mentioning in your market in particular and where you're located and, you know, the cities versus rural. wonder if you could outline some of these barriers a little bit more for us. Yeah, well, we're pretty much the only private research center that focuses on psychiatry and CNS studies in our community. I would say 95% of the physicians here probably don't know too much about research, have never worked in research, probably never received any training prior to what they the little that they know about research. So it's been very difficult to work with other physicians in the community and get them on board with research and get in to share the information about the current clinical trials we have in Imperial County. And that's something we're working on. I actually have a marketing outreach representative that's out to physician offices on a weekly basis, trying to set up these lunch relationships so we can get uh, more involved with other physicians. On the other side of it, uh, the patient information, there's um, not a lot of information about clinical trials out there for patients in Spanish. So what we try to do, we do a lot of marketing, social media and English and Spanish ads. We try to have flyers in English and Spanish. We have our marketing outreach person in the community meeting with people, attending events, um, but it's educating both. So that we're educating the patients in our community, we're educating the rest of the community. And so it's kind of like two things we're trying to do. We are a small research center and that's a lot of work to do. You need really a team, a group of people to do that. And so it's it's gonna take some time, but I think we're, we're making some progress and we're actually, I think this year, a lot more doctors are more interested and in becoming more involved with us in clinical trials. The other barriers come from the sponsors, CROs, where we don't take on a trial unless we know we can have Spanish material. And from the beginning, that's what we're told, but then we start a study and we don't get Spanish material like consents or anything else until months later. So that delays our recruitment, especially like, for example, I know a migraine study for specific um, specific type of migraine study, we have more Spanish speakers than English speakers. I can't recruit anybody if I don't have a Spanish consent. So we kind of fall behind until we can get that information given to us by the sponsor. And there's just, I, you know, there's various reasons why there's delays. With the f- social media ads, that's something we can change. And we actually create those when we start a study. And we just need the sponsor to approve them. But then we also get delays on that front. They don't want to approve them. They, so it's just, you know, I have barriers on both sides. 
<laughs> so within my community and then on the other side. But I think we are trying to figure this out and we're getting better at it. Well, you've really outlined some very, you know, basic <laughs> administrative barriers. Again, yeah. I, I thought we'd be talking at 50,000 feet and we're down to, I don't have a Spanish language consent yeah. form and I can't get my translated ads uh, approved mm -hmm. fast enough. Dan, uh, you know, I like just at the outset, you said, look, uh, I'm not interested in the theoretical. Let's get down to the practical. You know, the, the data shows the representation, you know, in any given trial, I think I saw one that's 78% of participants might be white and then African-American, Latino, Native American, Asian, or in sort of the also categories. Uh, what are you seeing across some of the categories as far as improvements? Where's it getting better, do you think? It's getting better from organizations like ours, Black women in clinical research, Latinos in clinical research. I mean, both of these organizations haven't even been around for a year. At least I think Black women in clinical research is fairly new, already making more impact than what think tanks attempt to do with all their donors and all their papers that they publish. At the end of the day, that doesn't reach the communities. What we're doing is we are the adapter in the communities where all these pipes already exist. So you have hospitals, you have medical offices, you have community colleges. We've got to get into these underserved areas and connect all these pipes. Right now, there's a bunch of pipes that are not connected. So you really need like grassroots organizations like ours to do it because sponsors have been trying to do this. Trying, I, I use the word loosely, but they've been talking about it for several decades now. And obviously that top-down approach that let's write several white papers and get our colleagues to high-five each other is not working. Mm -hmm. And I think LICR is born out of necessity. Mm -hmm. And Monica, as you were describing some of the, the efforts, are you able to reach out to these sponsors and these companies and these CROs and so forth? And what, what has been some of the response? Well, the response has been positive initially, but then it gets loose somewhere. <laughs> so it's basically the same thing that happens with when we ask uh, to get an ICF translation. They say, yes, we'll do it. We promise it. We're very interested. Six months later, nothing has happened yet, right? Mm -hmm. And the opportunities are here. We're here to help. We're here collaborating. We're creating content. We're reaching out to the community. We're reaching out to the colleges, uh, to the high schools, to many organizations. And, and, and we're basically doing the job that they're supposed to be, were doing before, but we're showing results. So we, we actually want uh, them to reach out to us and work with us because that's the intention of this uh, organization. We're making a lot of progress with uh, schools, with the universities, with the high schools. They are very interested in this. Obviously, it's, it's on the best interest of the students too because they are going to learn about our absolutely beautiful industry. <laughs> and it's promising for the students. So in the case of sponsors, the, the response has been kind of a slow but it's coming, right? Yes. Uh, it's working. And then with some vendors too, we have been having meetings, uh, like very actively having meetings basically on a weekly basis and doing material, like I was mentioning in English and Spanish. 
So we're, we're definitely making an impact and a positive impact out there. Like I was mentioning earlier today, we're making the invisible visible. <laughs> You're meeting with, I'm sure, the clinical liaisons and the site monitors and things like that on a regular basis. But let's imagine as I'm continuing my interviews like we're having today, but then I'm talking with a group of operations people at the companies. And I have a panel like this with pharma sponsors or medical device companies. What would you want to ask them or tell them directly? Um, I think the first thing I'd like to say is that if you are focusing on diversity and inclusion in the workforce within their company, as well as, you know, for patient subjects, and if the need has been consistent throughout the years, then they need to stop doing what they've been doing and need to start doing things differently. And I think the first thing would to be to collaborate with outside groups like us, or even if it's not us, just outside groups that have extension into to the sites, to the actual subjects that, that need to be considered and involved. Um, because ultimately it's like Dan said, you know, the top down, but it's, if this has been a situation and obviously it's, it's, it's a growing situation because now it's getting a lot of I guess topics and conversations are now starting to really, really come up ever since COVID started. Um, it's definitely something that they haven't necessarily been doing right. And so in our situation, on top of that is one thing that people don't know about Latinos in clinical research is that outside of the organization, Dan, Chris, and Monica, they actually have CRC and CRA academies. So they're bringing in new uh, individuals into the, into the research organization, to the industry. You know, so we have access not just to these schools and and vocational schools, as well as universities and things like that. But we have access to the new incoming industry personnel, right? And so when we have that type of access, we can talk to you know whoever's coming in and start working from the ground up, right? As well as the, our members that are site owners, just like Judy, Monica, Dan, and Chris, as well as we also have site owners from Colombia, from Mexico, Bolivia, where it's actually the dense population, you know, you want to have these conversations with them. And some of the things that we offer these sponsors and CROs is to say, hey, come, come and do a live webinar with us, uh, see what it is that you can get from our, our members to speak with you so that you actually get that one-on-one -on -one and you don't just give it to some sort of marketing firm or third party company and, and, you know, say, hey, we'll do this for us and let's see what we get. It's I mean, I'm sure that will help to some extent, but it also helps to do a little bit extra. So consider going out into these organizations that have direct access to these individuals that have the answers because they're on the, at the ground level, right? As far as having direct access to the issues themselves, just like Judy perfectly la uh, laid out and probably already have solutions or a list of solutions that they would like to see. I think that focusing on grassroots and with organizations that have access to that is super important. Thank you. And Chris, you know, we've talked about the various conditions that often come to mind that we need more representation in the trials. Uh, have the patient advocacy groups, think of a diabetes group, I think of arthritis groups or mental health groups, have the patient advocacy groups been a channel for you? And how receptive are they to assisting in recruitment efforts? I don't think at this point that we've had any affiliation with any patient advocacy groups, but it would certainly be something we'd be interested in. Um, as far as those groups themselves channeling patients into research, um, I couldn't answer that. Mm -hmm. I, I would have no idea. Maybe okay. Monica has an answer. Yeah. She's Monica, <laughs> you have some experience with that, Monica? Yeah. 
Yeah, yes. I actually have reached out to many of these organizations. I have a mix of uh, answer here because the thing is, some of these organizations are open to collaborate, but it's a financial gain for them. So it's, uh, sometimes it can be very expensive. And then on the other hand, some other organizations, uh, they say, yes, we're interested. We're advocating for this uh, community, for this patient population that have this specific condition, but they don't allow you to do really any lunch and learns or anything mm-hmm. to, to reach out to this patient population. So they say yes, but not. <laughs> Yes. Because the, the, the only way that they will collaborate is by listing the studies in their website. But that's about it. So from my standpoint, I don't understand how come this kind of organizations are advocating for this group of, uh, of for these communities, for this group of people with these conditions, if they are not helping advanced research, which is the, in the first place is what is really going to help them in the long run. I mean, if they don't have treatments, Forget about it. That's not, nothing is going to happen. They're going to continue in the same hole. Now, looking at it from an uh, overview, as far as the patient advocacy groups, we have worked with them before, Dan and I, but they do charge X amount of dollars to have any kind of presence in their community. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it was rather costly, if I remember correctly. It's more of a, are you going to help us? And then we'll consider helping you kind of venture. So, you know, I can't really say whether or not it wasn't too beneficial in our case when we've used them a couple of different times, a couple of different patient advocacy groups. That's not to say they couldn't be, but from, from a, a perspective of just being beneficial to, to minorities, I don't think that's their, their purpose, goal, have any inclination to pursue that whatsoever. It's just my that's opinion. A, yeah, it's interesting to be worth asking them that way. So Dan, I'm also curious then from your point of view, what does good look like? What does better look like? You know, if we talk about, we've described where we are and let's talk about where we want to be. How will we know we're making progress? Well, I think good has nothing to do with ethnicity. I think clinical research has a branding problem ever since I started, probably way before I started. I started in 2005. I've noticed that You know, you say the word clinical research to any person of almost any ethnicity and they think, okay, first thing they think of is guinea pig. So I think better actually has nothing to do with ethnicity or disparities. I think it's just getting the word out, period, what clinical research is. Most people would never consider clinical research. Why? Because most physicians would never consider it for their patients. Why? Because most physicians don't even realize that there's opportunity for them to conduct clinical research and as an adjunct to their private practice and provide alternatives for their patients. So better, we've got a long way to go before we start talking about disparities. I mean, let's just start with get more patients, period, in clinical research. Mm -hmm. And, And just expanding upon what Dan said, if you look at it from the doctor's perspective, they seem to to not put two and two together oftentimes in terms of, well, in order to have a new treatment, a more effective treatment, we have to go through these trials. They seem, they seem to have, there seems to be a disconnect there oftentimes. I'm not interested in research. Research is horrible, but yet yeah. I want new treatments. You know what I'm I want running more into? effective treatments. You know what I'm running into? I'm moving to Yuma, Arizona. It's um, 
it's kind of like where Judy's at, except it's right like an hour away in it, it, across the Arizona line. There is a huge opportunity there. There's zero clinical research activity. There's probably 30 physicians in the town, maybe, maybe 100, but 30 that actually do private practice for themselves. Do you know what the enemy of great is? The enemy of great is good enough. These guys... They don't want any disruption to their business model. So when you come in and say, hey, we can do clinical research, you can provide alternative for your patients. They say, that's great. And I'm good enough where I'm at. This is kind of, I think, indicative of the mentality of a lot of physicians. You know, I don't know if that's their responsibility. I think it's ours as people in the industry. That's one of the things we're doing with Latinos in Clinical Research and the PI Academy and the Site Owner Academy, where we're teaching the business and the physician aspects of doing clinical research. So we've got a lot of work to do, uh, Mark, as you can probably see. Oh, that's very insightful. If you have another minute, I'd like to ask a couple of very kind of operational things about some trends that are going on beyond just the racial disparities. I wanted to ask about decentralized clinical studies. And I'm sensitive because many people call them sightless clinical studies, which I, that's an odd term, but it's disrespectful. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Since obviously there, there are PIs and there are uh, CRAs and everybody else involved. But I guess we also mean at home that you don't necessarily have to go to the university center, but somebody's tracking it from home, maybe the home testing collection and so forth. What are the trends that you guys are seeing again from the ground? I like the way you put that, Ashley. It's like uh, on the ground level. What does that look like to you in your operations? Well, well that, the, yeah. the, <laughs> the different, I mean, this could be all another podcast, but the diff, <laughs> the distance between the basement and the penthouse is great. In matter of fact, you need a separate key to get up there. They've been trying this virtual trial, decentralized trial since 2009 is the earliest I can remember. Elements of it are great, like giving the patient the option to not come to the clinic that visit, but to do it from the home is great. But eliminating the sites, I don't think is a great idea because the sites are the ones who actually interact with the patients. If you eliminate the sites, if you only have one site in the whole state of California or two sites in the whole state of California, how are the patients gonna trust one of these big companies or a CRO they've never heard of? It's just not gonna happen. I mean, we've seen it time and time again. 90% of trials are behind on recruitment and that's because the sites that we do have run out of patients. Well, what, what's going to happen when we get rid of the sites that we do have? So it's, it's a great idea from a business perspective, right, from the sponsor side, because it, it reduces costs, right, which is ultimately a business's responsibility. But as Dan just kind of left off at, where are the patients going to come from, right? They come from the sites, from the doctors, from the, from the recruiters at the sites. So without those sites, where are they going to get the patients? I mean, I think the least trusted industry in the in the country is the pharmaceutical interest industry, right? Even after COVID. So nobody's going to, well, I shouldn't say nobody because some will, but very few people will volunteer for studies if it's, if it's just from the pharmaceutical level and they're the recruiters. You need the individual doctors and, and sites to be recruiting these patients. And to add to that, you know, I'm from a very rural area. I was in the clinical 
clinical industry for about 10 years. I've been working in it since I was about 19 or 20. And I will tell you from a rural area, you know, um, like Monica had said, the whole thing is about trust when it comes to different ethnicities, right? And more specifically Latinos. If there are patients or subjects that go into clinical trials, a lot of it is because they have the trust in the physician or the trust in the nurses or the trust in, you know, the mid-level providers and PEs and PAs. And so if you take the site away at that point, it's who are they going to be speaking to somebody over the phone, some representative that they can't doesn't speak their language or that doesn't understand them or they don't feel that trust with, it's going to probably even topple the numbers lower, perhaps. I mean, there's just like Dan says, there's a lot, a lot. Uh, a lot of work to be done. And again, you know, it's, it sounds really good from the corporate aspect for business-wise, but when you think about it from the ground level, it, it doesn't make sense. Well, at least for me, it doesn't. I mean, to play devil's advocate, like if I were running a pharma company, I mean, I would probably try to eliminate sites as well because that's a huge cost burden, especially if I think that I can come up with solutions by writing more white papers. Like, yeah, then I'm going to be like, okay, this is actually going to work. It's going to work on paper. Look, all the models are saying this is going to work. And when it boils down to it is that it doesn't work because it would have already been working by now. They've been doing virtual trials since 2009. The first one that I know of maybe earlier, although that could have been the first one. I don't think it's binary though. I do think there is a world where decentralized trials live alongside traditional trials. And then I think there's like a spectrum with mm -hmm. hybrid hybrid studies. So I'm not like anti-decentralized trials. I think there's a place for them, but I am anti trying to get rid of sites because I think there is no place for that. And maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm biased, but I mean, it would have happened already. Yeah. And I'm yeah, not trying to sell you on the idea in any way. I guess I'm asking, though, to, to uh, banter a little bit is that, you know, if I have a trial that only has 13 sites across the country, well, then if I don't have Lincoln, Nebraska, and I don't have Tucson, Arizona, well, then yeah, I'm losing a lot of patients. And so this idea of somehow can I go direct or let their own doctor do it rather than maybe a centralized site? That, yeah. That's all. I would just I actually think you know, volume wise because of what you said that sites go under recruited. I think it can work when the number of subjects you need is lower, like in phase two. I think in phase three, you're going to need more sites, not less sites, uh, just because the number of patients go up sometimes into the thousands of the amount of mm -hmm. patients that you need. Uh, unless we can tap into some patient source, like I know there's, there's talks of, uh, of patient influencers online. Pharma, some of the smart pharma have already started working with these influencers and there's a, that's a whole nother sub industry. It remains to be seen, but I think a world exists already where these things all kind of run in parallel. Mm -hmm. Monica, you had a thought. I, I was going to mention that this kind of trials will work, for example, for, to reach out to areas where the, the clinics are not present like a very rural areas, and then somebody wants to participate in a study. But in that case, they will have to educate those rural doctors about it, right? So we go back to the same point. And then on the other hand, for example, for conditions like psychiatric conditions in where you need to have that physical contact or that face-to-face -face that is not possible or is not as accurate when it is in, a, let's say, in a telehealth then th there will be a, some sort of gaps. And I think the drugs probably, or the data for those drugs probably won't be as effective. And when it is, 
you know, face to face with the contact with the patients and let aside then the trust, like Ashley was mentioning. So that's, I mean, there are many important key factors that are involved in that. Uh, but I have the same perspective as Dan that, uh, I mean, there is a war for both, but I don't think just that ruling out sites is going to be the answer. Fair enough. Well, folks, uh, what a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. So I just wanted to thank you, representatives from Latinos in Clinical Research. Boy, we've talked everything from process and procedures, you know, very operational, administrative. We've talked about the individual impact of the families and the new generation of researchers coming up. We've talked about how this affects the community and you know, rural, city, market by market. So I've really appreciated that. And then this whole idea of where do we go from here? Again, I was surprised saying just how do we elevate the status of clinical research more and be leaders in the total industry, not simply Latino communities. So I can't thank you enough for your time. It's been really fantastic. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Yes, indeed. I hope to follow up with you again on other topics in the future. Absolutely. We'll come back again next time, listeners. We're going to continue these conversations with healthcare executives. We're going to talk about their technology and their medical research. But more important, we're going to talk about how we connect with the patient and their needs and what we hear when we listen to the patients speak. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to The Patients Speak, healthcare innovations accelerating the patient journey with Mark Stinson. Presented by 83Bar, the patient activation company. Learn how 83Bar listens, educates, and navigates patients at 83Bar.com. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe now so you won't miss an episode of The Patients Speak. This podcast is produced by BSB Media. We also host another show you might enjoy, Unlocking Your World of Creativity. It's a top-rated podcast featuring interviews with creators around the world. We help you gain the confidence and connections to launch your creative work out into the world. Look for Unlocking Your World of Creativity on your favorite podcast app.